0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, uh, my name is Troy Halsell, and I'm your host on New Books in the American West, a channel on the New Books Network. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Michael Weeks. He's a lecturer of history at Utah Valley University, and today we're discussing his new book, Cattle Beat Capital Making Industrial Agriculture in Northern Colorado, published by the University of Nebraska Press in 2022. In 1870, several hundred settlers arrived at a patch of land at the confluence of the South Platte and Cache-La-Poudre rivers in the Colorado Territory. Their planned agricultural community, which they named Greeley, was centered around a small land holdings, shared irrigation, and a variety of market crops. 100 years later, Greeley was the home of the world's largest concentrated cattle, feed, uh, me, cattle feeding operation, with the resources of an entire region directed toward manufacturing beef. How did that transformation happen? Uh, Cattlebeat Capital is animated by that question. Expanding outward from Greeley to all of northern Colorado, Cattlebeat Capital shows how the beet sugar industry came to dominate the region in the early 20th century through a reciprocal relationship with its growers that supported a healthy and sustainable agriculture while simultaneously exploiting tens of thousands of migrant laborers. Michael Weeks shows how the state provided Uh, Much of the scaffolding for the industry in the form of tariffs and research that synchronized with the agendas of industry and large farmers – the transformations that led to commercial feedlots began during the nineteen thirties as farmers replaced crop rotations with seasonal livestock operations with densely packed cattle pens, monocrop corn, and the products pouring out of agro industrial labs and factories. Using the lens of Northern Colorado region, a Cattle beat Capital illuminates the historical processes that make our modern food systems. Michael, thanks for speaking with me today. I really appreciate it.
0: Troy, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for the invite. Um, So, first question:
1: uh, How did you come to write this book?
0: Well, I would start off by saying that I I'm a historian of place. I I really so when I arrived in 2010 at the University of Colorado Boulder to begin my PhD program, I wanted to understand what Northern Colorado looked like. And one of the things that I came that came across right away is on a particular day, uh, kind of one of those kind of overcast. early wintry days, I, I noticed a really strong smell coming from the Northeast, and uh, I'm not unfamiliar with agriculture, so I recognized it pretty quickly as uh, the smell of concentrated uh, feedlots. And as I investigated a little further, I found out that they were from Greeley, Colorado, which is about, oh, 40, 50 minutes to an hour, depending on how fast you drive from, from Boulder. And so that was kind of the starting point. I started asking questions. And if you've been spending time in Boulder, Colorado, you know that it is a place that prides itself as being a sort of, a, I don't know, maybe a, a special place, a place that imbued by um, environmental values and a strong um a strong uh, kind of progressive vibe. And so this, this presented as a sort of a nice oddity as the smell of industrial agriculture wafted its way into the city. So as I started my investigation, it was started off as a a sort of a curiosity. Um, But then as I did a little bit of research myself, I found out that Greeley was uh, Greeley of, uh, of the present and, and of 1970 where my book roughly ends started off as a, uh, uh, a pseudo-utopia, I say pseudo-utopian because it wasn't exactly utopian, but as a colony in 1870 based around irrigated agriculture and people who signed up uh, to um, put a certain amount of money down, move there, have irrigation to their farms, have a kind of fully developed town within the first couple of years. And then a hundred years later, 1870 to 1970, becomes the epicenter of the world's largest collection of concentrated cattle feedlots. I said, man, there's a great story there. So I guess the starting point was really trying to understand how a place that starts off as it did ended up as it did. Um, And so in the process, this developed from a curiosity to a few years later as um, as a dissertation project and then now as the book of Cattle Beat Capital.
1: You know, thanks for that. Yeah, it, it kind of got me thinking. Uh, I can't tell you how, both my dissertation and then other friends. It started with us going, "How did that happen? How did that get there?" You know, exactly. and just how, how you're able to unfold it. And, and, and sometimes there's something there. Sometimes there's not. Uh, but but I could definitely appreciate kind of how a big project starts from a rel- pretty straightforward and simple question. Yes. Um, just kind of.
0: If, if I could jump in really quick too, I think one of the things that all that happened through the process of this is. Uh, This was also my entrance into being a backyard gardener too, and learning how to do that. So oftentimes the process of working out questions I didn't understand or or thinking through sources happened as I uh, went into my backyard and tried to dig through what ended up being about six inches to a foot of old rocks and moss and things to get down to bare soil so I could plant something on myself uh, or plant something in my own backyard. So the the process of understanding industrial agriculture and how to do small scale agriculture, in my mind, there was no clear uh, no clear line between the two of them. Hmm.
1: Thanks for that. Um. So to, to, this is always my favorite question. Um. What, so what did the, what did the research process look like for this book? And I guess kind of more specifically, was there a certain particular source or kind of types of sources that really helped you get? Uh, get in and answer the question you asked?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I was fortunate. One of the things that I discovered early on is that the route to industrial cattle feeding ran straight through sugar beets, a crop that I was entirely unfamiliar with. And it turned out that uh, between 1900 and 1950, that was uh, not only the largest industry, but easily the most lucrative industry in Northern Colorado. Uh, and I should step back for a moment by making sure that I point out that when I'm talking about northern Colorado, I am talking about um, the irrigated landscape of the region. Um, and most of the uh, most well positioned farmers in the region are those who relied intensely on a very limited amount of water. Uh, but what I found is that you have to understand that. And so the first place I went, fortunately, University of Colorado had at that time anyway, um, All of the uh, archives that uh, the sugar beet company, beet sugar company, Great Western Sugar, had available to them. So my first pro, the first part of the process for me was, while I was still working through my classes, I was able to go in my free time and just spend time, I guess, playing a little bit, finding out who the company was, how it uh, ran its operations, who its major suppliers were, and so on and so forth. And then when I was able to finish all my classes and all the the, the comps and the things that go along with graduate school, it enabled me to start extending outwards from there. Uh, I found that Colorado State University was an incredible source. They have a fantastic uh, source of of water archives. So understanding how irrigation worked came through spending time at uh, the University of Colorado's major rival. And then uh, from there, uh, I discovered a few things is that I had to go to understand how we moved from uh, beet sugar um, to cattle as a full time operation, which is where I ended up. Uh, One has to start talking about chemicals and where how. how synthetic chemicals and pharmaceuticals made their way into northern Colorado. So for me, that meant spending a lot of time in the archives of uh, the companies Dow and DuPont. And then I also had to understand the labor part of things. And so I was able to go to uh, Notre Dame in 2015 and spend some time looking at a surprising uh, archive uh, from a person named Thomas Mahoney, who was this... You know, a person with only a fifth grade education who arrives in northern Colorado in the uh, the 19-teens and 1920s, and he becomes, you know, in a completely kind of unexpected way, a huge advocate for the migrant laborers, who I'm sure we'll talk about a little bit later in this discussion, Uh, and his papers are widely available. Finally, and I think this ended up being the thing that I enjoyed the most, uh, um, between 2015 and 2020, I got a chance to interview probably about a dozen to 20 different people who were uh, either cattle feeders themselves, um, who were folks practicing alternative agriculture. I've interviewed veterinarians. Um, I even interviewed a person, a retired professor from uh, Colorado State University who uh, started off as a, a proponent of industrial agriculture, but then eventually ended up writing the principal textbook on uh, agricultural ethics, which is, which various versions of it are still used today in agricultural programs throughout the country. His name was Robert Zimdahl, and his perspective on the post-World War era to the present was just phenomenal. I found that it was useful for thinking um, the whole way through. So I'd say that the answer to the archival question or or where my sources were was was sort of all over the place, Um, but they all, I guess, came together at certain point.
1: Cool. Yeah. That, that That's always one of my favorite questions. Cause it's, it's sometimes, uh, if you're like me on my, my project, you know, I literally, like I just had 200 boxes fall in my lap and there you go. I didn't have to go anywhere. Uh, but I got other folks who I've met, uh, or even friends in grad school where they're having to chase them all over the world or all over the U S and stuff. So I'm, I'm always kind of curious as to how people do kind of reach and start to stitch stuff together to kind of tell a very, a very regional, very specific story, but you know, they're, other sources you have to chase them down all at least in your case over the u s and and throughout the west so so thank you for that um, so so you've already touched on it a little bit um, but can you kind of um, both talk about the Piedmont region kind of its origin story but could you also kind of uh, and it says kind of describe where it is you know you think of northern Colorado and you, you got a little square and you kind of think of it but like if you kind of kind of draw a little box around it a little bit and then I got a follow- on question after that
0: yeah. So yeah, if I could define that, and with my apologies to those people who live in the Piedmont region of the American Southeast, I took, I took the name Piedmont uh, from a historical geographer who defines the uh, they defines uh, northern and northern and southern Colorado east of the Rocky Mountains as the Northern Colorado Piedmont and the Southern Colorado Piedmont, and he argues that those regions, and I agree with them, and I use this terminology. That those regions uh, are unique in that uh, they are in the transition between mountains and plains, but they are unique also in the sense that they are heavily dependent on the water resources that emanate from the Rocky Mountains. Uh, Early on, they developed very, very extensive uh, transportation networks. And market agriculture from the start was very much at the, the heart of what they were doing. And so that's how I try to characterize um, the, the Piedmont region. And so you'll hear me in the conversation today back, going back and forth between maybe northern Colorado and Piedmont. But what I really mean is these agri- these irrigated regions of northern Colorado. Thank you. Uh, to your entire question, <laughs> I was more focused on the, defining the region.
1: No, no, no. That, that, I was just trying to get a, a clear definition for folks. No, that's yeah. perfect. Um, and so, it's so for me, uh, the follow-on question is, and this is kind of the kind of the umbrella, I think underneath mm-hmm. a lot of, of your analysis goes. Is can you explain, well, define, and then explain agroecology?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think it's it's one of those terms. It sounds a lot more complicated than it really is. At least. I try to make it as simple as possible in in my narrative, even though it's central to maybe some some more complex arguments. Agroecology for me is is very simply, it's the ecology that exists with any particular farmed landscape, with any particular landscape where crops are grown for whatever purpose. But it's central to the story because um, I always want to return to how did changes in the way that, in the types of things people grow. How did changes in economic relationships, how did changes in crop rotations, the types of animals that were used, um, how did they change the agroecology? How did they change the ecology of specific pieces of landscapes in and of themselves and, and how they related to each other? So as I start off the story, which I, I'm guessing might be your follow up question, so I don't know. But as I start off this, this story, it's really about how a group of settlers arrived on a piece of landscape with a kind of agroecology agro- that existed in, or an ecology that existed due to land management strategies by Native Americans and others um, at the time, and how they both upended that and created an agroecology to replace it and the processes by which that occurred and then carry that forward into the 20th century.
1: Well, so so you kind of, yeah so so can you kind of unpack what what that that shift is? Um, and, and I think the specific question I was asking is how did the farmers they devel- develop this kind of sure. sustainable farming farming system? But I think could you talk a little bit about kind of the before uh, you know farmers show up, and then of course after they show up, and maybe kind of you know kind of untangle um, well the before and after.
0: Yeah, so northern the, the Piedmont is. I mean, although um, indigenous peoples of the region have shifted over time, in the mid 19th century, we're talking about Cheyennes, Arapahoes, to a lesser degree, um, we're talking about other groups as well, uh, but uh, largely things were a little bit in flux. At the time as um, bison had moved. Uh, mostly east from the area along what we would call the Front Range or the immediate Rocky Mountains, uh, their numbers were in decline. But I describe, and I won't go into this in detail here, but I describe ways in which they manage the landscape through fire, through uh, movement, um, and through um, a, maybe an applied understanding of the the, the system of um, um, uh, the system of of, of uh, you know, roots and uh, plants that existed in the region that had a that scientists have later on understood had a very very interconnected kind of a nature, such that when you break through the roots of the soil, um, you're not just severing the soil in that area; you're sever- severing an entire set of ecological relationships. So, in the 1850s and 1860s. Uh, mining comes in as a result in large part of the gold rush in Denver in 1859. You Start to get a, a small number of white settlers who move on to the South Platte River, which kind of moves through Denver and extends in a northeasterly arc away from Denver. Uh, and then in 1869, and this is where my story begins in earnest. Uh, New York Tribune editors uh, Horace Greeley, who is famous for his relationship with Lincoln, for failing in his run for the presidency in 1872, and a very um, uh, a, ver- a very proficient um, and interested backyard gardener as well. He and his agricultural editor, a person named Nathan Meeker, get together and uh, they are they, they have these conversations about uh, starting a plan irrigated agricultural colony in the West. By the end of 1869, they've picked out this region near the confluence of the South Platte and Poudre rivers. Um, and uh, it, by 1870, you start to see settlers showing up. They've all paid a certain amount of money to, uh, uh, to, to join in with the colony. And that money was supposed to be used to both uh, allow for them to have a plot in town, uh, to have an agricultural plot outside of town, to start the building of buildings, but mostly to be able to develop uh, irrigated, irrigation canals. The problem was is they had planned four different systems, but the amount of money they invested only enabled them to build just one of those four systems. And I, I do go into the book, uh, some of the problems involved in trying to build irrigation and why it's a lot more complicated than just digging a few ditches. But the process of the next 20 or 30 years for the settlers was in large part, learning the different types of soils that were available in the region they were farming, how much how much could be produced in a particular land. Certain lands were better for potatoes, others for wheat and so on and so forth developing good crop rotations. So what I argue is, but, and and these were generally speaking, people who were fairly uh, modern for their time period and their approaches. I found that in looking at uh, the things that they were reading, they were looking at, they were reading farmer's almanacs. They were looking at um, books within scientific agriculture. They were following, for example, the way that alfalfa was, was slowly becoming a crop that could be grown in colder regions. Like Northern Colorado, and quickly adopted it once it was available. But at the same time, so I want to kind of hold off that group and say that they're, they're developing 1870 to, to 1900. At the same time, though, starting in the 1860s, you, you start you begin to see open range cattle ranching ranching happening on the periphery of where all these farmers are. Okay, and then you know it's a fairly well trod story how. They overextended how they um, how the landscape eroded and was hurt by a lot of their processes and how by the mid 1800s um, the open range cattle cattle industry was in huge decline. But where that story what that story oftentimes misses is that in that late 1800s, 1890s period, we start to see the, the crop farmers, the, the irrigated farm, farmers there, and those who sort of remain on the landscape, they're thinking about the world sort of come together. So by 1900, most of the crop farmers in the irrigated regions are also, they're integrating cattle and other kinds of stock in with their, their, um, in with their crop rotations. In with their day-to-day management. And for those who started off as, uh, as open range cattle ranchers, who decide to stay and try to make a go of it, for a lot of them they recognized their need to do some of their own farming and also become dependent on some of the full-time crop farmers as well. So we start to see two industries that seem to be very different pieces come together. So what I argue is that by 1900, we have a fairly sustainable kind of agriculture there relying on established crop rotations, the integrated management between animals, uh, especially stock, and a host of different crops that are being planted. And so by 1900, you could say that northern Colorado is one of these somewhat success stories in agriculture in the American West.
1: And so, to, for that relationship, you know, I mean, I think this actually might have been one of my favorite chapters when you kind of get into that interdependency between, um, at least early on, between, you know, ranchers, uh, uh, farmers, and then, like how you said, they how they kind of become one and the same, um, uh, or, yeah, but could you... Um I guess what crop was that ended up being at the center of this there early on and then ended up being um, kind of one of the big money moneymakers uh, and, and a big part of that ecology uh, there at North of Piedmont. Hey, yes. So what was it? But then can you also just kind of talk a little about, bit about what, you know, kind of how that kind of agricultural operated and all that stuff?
0: Yes. Okay. So I mentioned it before, but that crop is, is sugar beets. And I, and I appreciate, Troy, how you're trying not to give it away, but it's sort of already been given away. Yeah. Um, Uh, So uh, one of the things I find really interesting is that um, there's a push and and not just a push in northern Colorado, but throughout a variety of different regions in the American West to integrate uh, um, sugar beets or have it become a principal staple crop amongst uh, people who are moving to the region. Um, and the truth, that was true in northern Colorado as well. In fact, you see in the 1870s and 1880s, these advertised contests uh, by magazines like the Rocky Mountain News, you know, who can grow the largest sugar beet? But the problem with this particular crop is that it means it's, it's not that tasty. Uh, there's really no market for it un- unless it gets processed in the sugar. So you have to have um, the uh, you have to have the factories you have to have the capital, you have to have the scientific know-how to make that happen. So all of those contests were wonderful, but until a concentrated amount of money and entrepreneurial uh, sort of know-how and and maybe some financial incentives were present, it wasn't going to happen. And that happens in 1900. Um, So the backstory is that... uh, um, in 1897, the United States uh, passes a fairly uh, liberal tariff called the Dingley Tariff, which puts a huge tariff on uh, foreign sugar coming from places like Cuba. So this was the impetus for some entrepreneurs to start investing money into uh, into these beet sugar factories. So in 1900... Uh, the first factory gets started in a small town called Loveland, uh, about 20 miles away, 20-30 miles away from from Greeley. Uh, the farmers agree to contract a certain number of acres to guarantee that they're going to give all of their beets on a certain number of acres to the factory. And within a couple of years, there's a there's a fairly sustained industry going. Um, and uh, in 1905, the sugar trust kind of enters into Northern Colorado. And between 1905 and 1930, the industry expands dramatically such that by, by before World War One, it becomes the world's or the nation's largest beet sugar industry, providing sometimes as much as 10 to 15 percent of all the sugar being consumed in the nation. But here's what I find most fascinating about this. And I think you kind of are, are your question leads into this. One of the ways we try to think of industrial agriculture is that Uh, You know, big industry, big capital enters in, squashes the little person, and now everybody becomes a peon to the larger industry. Now, I know that's a very simplistic way of understanding it, but I think sometimes we tend to go that direction um, in too simple of a way. But in this particular case, Great Western Sugar recognized from the start, as did its growers, that they were a very sort of interdependent. interdependent kind of a community because um, it turned out that you can't grow beets, sugar beets, on the same plot of ground year in and year out. In fact, they rotated really well with the crops that farmers were already using. So what they basically did is usually only two or three years out of nine could you actually successfully grow sugar beets without causing your soil to crash. The other thing is the company also relied on the same water sources, which were very limited as its growers. So sometimes there were some interplay. There's this great story in 1934 about how Great Western Sugar has to come begging its growers for enough water so that it can process its beets into sugar. So what ended up happening is the sugar company is consistently encouraging farmers to continue and even improve upon the kinds of rotations that they're already doing. And in return, farmers are also recognizing that there's an even greater need to depend on stock, cattle mostly, but during a period between the 1920s and 1930s, sheep to a large extent as well, um, to resupply the manure and nutrients back to the soil that they were taking from it through their farming practices. So what you find out is there's a sort of a balance happening between 1900 and say mid-1930s between the growers, the sugar company, and I would say the land itself. Um, and one of the arguments I make in the chapter is that um, perhaps we should see that in certain cases, capitalism and sustainable agriculture are possible. And in this case, I find that really what makes the difference is a, is a strong dependent interdependency on producer, grower, land, and local resources.
1: Yeah, I, I was actually really fascinated by this part of, uh, of the story. It just really, I think you did a great job of kind of unpacking and explaining, you know, the sugar, the sugar beet, you know, and kind of all of its, I of constituent parts is the right words, but kind of all the different things that I think of tap, right? the taproot, right? All the way, it kind of goes down and around. Um, yeah. But you had mentioned it earlier, and so I guess we'll jump into it right now. Is um, can you talk about uh, the kind of labor regime that dominated the beet fields in this region before World War II? So, kind of that nineteen hundred to uh, well, the you know thirty nine forty something like that.
0: Yeah. So sugar beets are not just intensive in the terms of the types of uh, soil management that's necessary. They're also very a very labor intensive crop and. Uh, if you've done any work on an agriculture, you know that one of the the central themes from the late nineteenth through the mid twentieth century is a push toward mechanization to reduce the dependence on human labor and you mentioned the 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 beat itself and if for for my listeners if you've ever Uh, If you've ever planted beets before, uh, you notice usually they come in a fairly large seed and if you broke that seed down you took it out of the packet, you'd actually find um, these little sort of compartments within the seeds, these little germs. And so um, when a beet, sugar beets or most kinds of traditional beets, when they're farmed and they, they, they germinate, they come above the soil, they usually have two or three, sometimes as many as seven different plants all coming up. But beets are big and bulbous. And so those beets are not going to all have room to, to grow. And they come all, out at odd and uh, um, unpredictable angles. So you can't just take a machine and calibrate that machine for getting rid of plants at, at certain kinds of distances from each other. What that comes down to is it, you require hand thinning. And so a huge labor regime accompanied uh, the development of the beet sugar industry. And so in Northern Colorado, uh, between 1900 and 1920, the majority of that uh, labor regime was uh, German-Russians, wh- whose backstory is, is, is fascinating, how they moved from Ger- from Germany to Russia, then eventually making their way to the United States and working largely on the plains in places like Northern Colorado. Um, but in a in large part, A lot of them, the the system that developed was very much based on family labor. It was contract labor. So when the leading male of the family uh, signed a contract, it was pretty much understood, even if not stated directly, that in order to make it pay for the the laborers, they would need to put their entire family to work. And since German-Russians tended to have fairly large families when compared to the the typical family in the United States at the time, uh, there were a lot of laborers to work. And in that early 20th century period, there was also um, land was cheap enough that if they worked hard enough, if they labored and and were willing to commit to farming enough acreage for growers, they could make their way out of being a laborer and eventually become a grower themselves. And in fact, if you look in northern Colorado today and you took a survey of those who are still in farming, you'll find a lot of people capable of tracing their roots back to these German-Russians. But when World War I happens and the labor is cut off and a lot of German-Russians had already made their way into becoming growers, the shift moves toward uh, Mexican-Americans from the American Southwest and Mexican nationals contracted from Mexico to do the work. And so what I what I try to show is how the nature of labor and the nature of of the number of people required to do the labor, was in large part dictated by the nature, the biology of the beet itself. How difficult it was to remove or to, to mechanize uh, something that was the most lucrative product, uh, the lucrative crop of the region. And I do spend a good deal of time talking about um, the housing that existed for um, the uh, uh, for the laborers, uh, ways in which they, ways in which sometimes they were able to get advantages in a system that was very much uh, marked against them by doing things like measuring fields in advance to make sure that the acreage was actually what the farmer said, and sometimes measuring it a little bit smaller so they could get more done on something that was actually a little less than an acre. But in truth, the company, Great Western Sugar, and its growers had the real leverage uh, because when it came to things like payment and recruiting, up until the 1930s, they didn't pay uh, they didn't pay their their workers until they'd accomplished thinning, weeding, and harvesting, which was, depending on the season, a five to six month kind of an operation. And so, for some of them, a sort of peonage kind of develops in the 20s and the 1930s because they find themselves with a little bit of cash at the end of the season. But arriving the following spring in debt and knowing that they're not going to get paid for their work until the end of that season.
1: Yeah, so that's yeah, yeah. That's so, so. Let me ask you this: So, when it came to the contracts, and, and this is just a question that popped in my head as you were talking, um, if they're not getting paid at the end of the season, is their payment dependent upon the actual harvest, like like, like what they're actually able to produce and then get to the sugar, you know, company for refining? Um, you know, cause I'm just thinking of an instance in where if there's a big, you know, some sort of environmental catastrophe that ruins the entire crop are the laborers then just completely SOL on any kind of payment or.
0: Yeah, that, that, and that changed over time in the, the, the early contracts, the 19 aughts and 19 teens, those contracts were all based on acreage. You get, will get paid at the end of the season based on, uh, thinning, um, weeding, And harvesting a certain, uh, however many acres you agree to, Uh, during the 1920s there were a number of uh, some of the laborers. There was some of the laborers were able to organize. There were a few strikes, Um, and so contracts were kind of in flux during the 1920s, where. Uh, some of the money um, might be based on the number uh, the amount of beets harvest in a particular acreage and there was a sort of baseline amount that they received but still held off until the end of the season. But one of the, the idiosyncrasies of the contract uh, that was deeply problematic for uh, for workers is that sh- is that they were uh, is that if the the grower, uh, found the need for extra labor to bring the crop to harvest, to do the necessary weeding, that they would charge the cost of that against what the laborer would eventually earn. So the situation I described in the book that I think was the most dramatic of those was 1929, where uh, initially the company and its growers had planted a record number of beets. And you know how it is. At the end of the season, The uh, if you want your beets to become maybe even a little more mature, provide a little more mature, more sugar, maybe the weather is a little more cooperative as it was in October, early October of 1929, you let the beets grow a little longer, right? Because ultimately, uh, the laborers, for the most part, are still getting paid the same amount, even if they have more heavy beets to harvest because they've had longer to grow. However, uh, in that particular year, Things turned cold really fast. Beets started freezing into the ground in late in late October. Uh, workers are having laborers are having real hot t- trouble just digging them out of the ground. They've got ice all over their clothing, and so farmers they they, they, they panic. You could say they panic, but maybe it was a catastrophe of their own making because they waited too long, and they start hiring all these local kids. These you know, sometimes you have these stories, these high school kids saying, "You know, I can make. I don't have to go to school today. I'm going to go out and work at the beat fields to make a few bucks there." And all that money is getting charged against laborers who haven't even get paid yet by the end of the season. I, uh, one of the people who uh, who I did some research on named Thomas Mahoney, I described earlier. Uh, he has a whole. He maintained a whole list of all of the different workers, and they're the ledgers of how much they were owed and how much they eventually ever got paid some of whom were never paid so for example uh in january of the following year uh when the final beats were fa- finally unearthed um that's also the time when the laborers who by the way who were being provided housing uh, by the growers uh, that was a time when a lot of them were it was time for them to leave and if you were a mexican national it was time for you to go back to mexico so for a lot of them, they were in this tough position between demanding wages that weren't coming their way in a bad harvest year, but also living on the property of, of those who owned the money and knowing that they were supposed to head back to Mexico. There were a number of them that never got paid during that year. So there were some ways in which contract environment and capitalism all came together. And with so many of the advantages being in the uh for those that were the growers, uh, I would say that the, on the balance, uh, workers really suffered in that particular year. And that was perhaps the most extreme example.
1: Thank you for that. Um, and so that kind of gets me, and this is going to be a very broad question. So, so take it wherever you want to go here. Um, so, what was the federal government's role in the sugar beet industry? And, and I'm very much aware that they had a you know, a lot of different roles, but I don't know if you might want to talk about what you might deem the most important or a couple of them. And, and just kind of so we can kind of see kind of some of the top down, you know, maybe carrots and sticks type type yeah. stuff going on.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Good question. Thank you for that question. You know, and if you don't mind, I'm going to I'm going to make this more broad. Uh, my answer a little more broad, not just talk about the federal government, talk about the state in general, because in some ways there's a lot there. There are are many ways in which. Um, uh, state-sponsored agricultural science, though done from particular agencies, uh, crossed over so many lines. And so I think our starting point should be to understand that, uh, uh, that the federal government had a huge interest in the growth of the beet, sh- of the beet sugar industry since the early 20th century, because uh, they're looking for sugar independence, if you will. And so, uh, within the United States, there's cane sugar, for example, can only be grown in very small parts of, for example, Louisiana, Southern Florida, things like that. And so, the United States is fairly dependent on Cuba, and to a lesser extent, a few exports, uh, sorry, imports coming from um, the European sugar beet industry. So, in 1901, uh, the USDA uh, creates the Division of Sugar Plant Investigations. Uh, And that in that agency slowly grows and their job is to basically go in to uh, uh, to growers in places like northern Colorado and elsewhere and to sugar companies like Great Western Sugar and say, what do you need? How do we grow the industry? How do we how do we make this viable? What problems are you having? And so they begin sort of in the early in the 19 aughts, they're compiling background information on the beet sugar industry. They're producing some reports on diseases. They are going sometimes into farmers' fields and saying and asking them questions and then providing sometimes uh, some suggestions on fertilizers and things like that. But what I found is that as the USDA's Division of Sugar Plant Investigations grows, in the 19 teens and the 1920s, they basically become what I argue was an arm of the industry itself. Where, if they want to know what's best for the entire industry—growers, laborers, um, factories, workers—the answer comes. The answer comes by asking the question to industry: What do you need? So what that eventually morphs into, in the teens and the 1920s, is they start doing actual research in the fields. Well, in the 1920s, we start to get uh, some of the chemical companies, Dow, DuPont, and others, learning about how they might be able to uh, expand their operations by uh, bringing their new synthetic chemicals into the fields of farmers. So they start saying, well... They start talking to the USDA and also to land grant colleges like Colorado State University, and they say, "We have such and such product. You have such and such land. We will give you so much money if you allow us to uh, uh, to experiment." And so, a lot of the larger growers agree to use their plots of land in exchange for certain kinds of benefits. At the same time, so what happens is, and this is something that I argue is that. The USDA and the Sugar Division of Sugar Plant Investigations, um, land-grant universities such as Colorado State, UC Davis, Utah State, and others all understand that their best path forward to growing their own agencies, to increasing their influence, is to map their research activities onto the needs of growers and industry. And I would say also to the, in the process, ignoring, for example, larger issues like health of the land, the folks that are actually working in the fields on a day-to-day basis and that kind of thing. So it becomes a kind of a a, a relationship where the two see each other as allies who don't question the motives, background and and direction of each other. And I think that continues. I think we can see a lot of uh, lineage a lot of traces of that 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 move their way forward and when i get into the post world war ii era i talk about how that system has is a very kind of fully articulated one
1: and so hold on there you go sorry misplaced the book (laughs) i was thumbing through it um and there's actually one thing i if i can find it i should have done a better job so i'm not sitting here letting people listen to me thumb through your book to ask the right question here um can you kind of talk about to uh blah blah, blah uh B- the bureau of reclamation and water here Cause I think so 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 both kind of that organization but also the guy i just thought was a, it was an interesting chapter the guy uh, ralph parshall who came with the parshall flume uh, to kind of solve a lot of irrigation issues I, to me it was just an, like his story was just like a, a fascinating one about here's this guy doing his thing and then ends up having this really huge massive um positive effect for agriculture, in the, at least in that region, based yeah. on his technology he developed.
0: Yeah. That, Ralph Parshall was one of the uh, people that uh, was one of the most pleasant discoveries in, in my um, research journey. So Ralph Parshall is a person who starts off his career. So he uh, starts off his career in the early 20th century. He grew up in northern Colorado. He gets a job uh, as uh, an irrigation engineer as in a fairly new field. Uh, in 1906. Eventually, the USDA comes knocking at his door in the 19-teens, and he becomes uh, an irrigation engineer for them for the next 40 years uh, to the end of his career in the 1950s. And to one of the points that I was making earlier, his offices and most of his work, even though he eventually works for the USDA, remain on the campuses of Colorado State University. He, in a sense, is one of the most well-known people for graduate students working in water in that area. He, and so there's no clear line between Ralph Parshall, the USDA guy, and Ralph Parshall, the former Colorado State uh, person. So that's, a fir- that's the first thing I'd like to, to point out. But Parshall, uh, and with the help of his graduate students, uh, invents something called the Parshall flume, which enables, uh, enables uh, growers, uh, water users, anybody diverting water, to be able to measure water mm-hmm a lot more accurately than they were before. And this becomes really important because uh, the South Platte River system only has what, about 1.6 million acre feet of water. And the long, the, another way of saying that is just, if you don't know acre feet, that's not a lot of water. And so in most years, uh, those who are lower on the list of water users, what we call junior appropriators, are not getting the full allocation of the water they, they, they want. Um, or that they have tried to claim from the system. And one of the reasons that's happening is not just because there's not enough water, it's also because senior users, larger water users, or those who arrived earlier are claiming more water. Um, And because the the measurement's not accurate, they're able to oftentimes siphon off, I mean, sometimes a ton of extra acre feet that now is not working its way down to uh, other farmers. And what Partial is arguing is not only is that unfair, that that's economically destructive to the region. So he spends his entire career um, working on, first of all, developing the partial flume. And then unlike what a lot of uh, people working in universities and uh, the USDA did, uh, he spent a lot of his time actually going out to individual farms and actually measuring and placing them in and calibrating the specific needs of of farmers. I mean, he acted very much like an applied scientist, more so than an academic one. In the 1930s, uh, Partial ends up being one of the pioneers of some of the early snow surveys that would measure water, uh, determine how much farmers would get. Um, And he was also essential to one of the largest, uh, what we call Trans Mountain Diversion Projects, uh, in U.S. history and one of the earliest certainly. It's a project uh, he ends up writing the uh, the economic rationale for moving water from the headwaters of the Colorado River underneath a brand new national park called Rocky Mountain National Park um, and onto to uh, the northern Colorado Piedmont. And so by this, and this is one of those huge 1930s Bureau of Reclamation projects that doesn't get completed until the 1950s. And as I pointed out, this made this basically brought about 20 percent more water into the region than had existed prior to that. Uh, and so, when we talk about a lot of the conversations about. Uh, um, federal uh, or, or state-sponsored science on the Piedmont, we, of course, have to understand that um, the process by which water moved was measured and found its way into individual ditches, that that conversation is, is as important as the, the larger conversations that uh, you're going to find in, in, a, in a lot of the great books out there about water, like uh, Rivers of Empire by, by uh, Donald Worcester or some of the other books by uh, Hundley and others. Sometimes getting down to the brass tacks of how an individual like Parshall can dramatically influence the way water moves as the West is an incredibly important conversation and it's one that I spend some time on.
1: Thank you for that. Yeah, that, that was easily, you know, I, I often would you not be happy to hear this? Oftentimes when I when I read histories of water, I, I sometimes gloss my eyes will get a little glossed over. But well, yeah, it was in such a way, I think, by, by kind of focusing in on him as an individual and kind of his influence, it actually made it, whereas I was, it was a I mean, relatively small part of that chapter, but a fairly captivating read, at least for me, uh, when it came to trying to understand water usage and, 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 and things like that. Um, so, so moving forward, kind of getting um, into the Great Depression and on. So what effect did the Great Depression have on just the, the, the Piedmont's agricultural industry just kind of broadly?
0: Yes, okay, and I'll try to be uh, fairly uh, um, fairly succinct on this one uh, So a lot of the reader a lot of our listeners will be familiar with the Agricultural Adjustment Act of 1933. Perhaps you're familiar with the ways in which it was originally ruled unconstitutional, how it was, it was changed to um, the long story short here is that um, in 1934 sugar beets get added to the list of crops that come under production quotas under the uh, the adjusted, the Adjusted Agricultural Adjustment Act. Uh, And what that basically meant is that northern Colorado would get a quota of a certain amount of acres that they could plant in sugar beets. Up until the 1930s, one of the movements within the industry was to try to increase the number of acreage, the amount of acres that was planted, right? And so there's always this tension between do we focus on more beets per acre More sugar per acre, or do we focus on just growing the industry on and and onto onto lands that are that are no are not currently growing beets? What, what What these quotas do is they force growers, Great Western Sugar, the USDA, and the land grant colleges who are supporting them to focus on growing more beets per acre. So, what we see is a huge push toward mechanization in the 1930s, where the experiments done by the sugar, um, uh, by the USDA, by the land grant colleges, start to focus on how can we develop thinners, loaders, toppers, and other things that would decrease the number of laborers per acre. But the, the real prize, and this I should point out, the real prize had always been if we can take that multi-germ seed that pops up at all kinds of angles, has multiple seeds. If we can take that multi-germ seed and we can turn it into mono-germ, a single germ, then all of a sudden everything can follow. We can now plant them at equal intervals. We can develop machinery that can be calibrated to that. And we can get rid of labor or slowly but surely do that. And so in, during World War II, one of those uh, experiments uh, by, at UC Davis ends up producing not monogerm seed, but a machine that would actually shear off the different germs. So you could plant them individually. Okay? And then finally in 1951, uh, in a story that I think, uh, I think is, is begging to be told as part of uh, agronomy in the Cold War, the United States brings over a, a Russian agronomist, who helps to develop, finally find uh, monogerm seed that actually existed, breed that monogerm seed so that its progeny, generation after generation, would just produce monogerm seed until by the late 1950s, almost the entire industry um, has divorced itself from that multi-germ seed. And we see this because um, by the 1960, we have less than 10% of all the labor that was lead- needed just 40 years earlier. Okay? Uh, And so that's the real big change. And I think that that the Agricultural Adjustment Act and the quotas placed on uh, on acreage for beets really accelerates that process toward mechanization.
1: And that shift towards mechanization, was this something that was... um... Unique to the region or to the sugar beet industry or was this kind of something that you saw kind of across Agriculture broadly during this time That's just a question that popped up. It's not a comparative thing I understand that but that was just kind of one of the questions that popped in my head is, is this part of a bigger trend or something kind of a unique or a one-off
0: I think the easy answer to that is that uh, it was late in coming uh, when we look at uh, when we look at uh, crops such as uh, wheat uh, corn soybeans A lot of the large staple crops that occupy the plains in middle America, um, devices to be able to plant, harvest, um, and uh, even process in field uh those kinds of large staple crops they had already been developed and some of this has to do with my conversation about uh seeds and the way that the biology of those particular crops so i would say that the beets are not any unique in the push toward mechanization they're just very late to the party in terms of the time that it took to get there
1: okay and, and does that kind of come down to the fact that you have the multi-germs just kind of how they appear organically right like, like that's just mm-hmm. a uh, I'm going to mix my metaphors here. Kind of a hard nut to crack. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
0: Okay. There's also one other thing too, and I should point this out. It, it also has to do with the labor regime because uh, for, for, for growers, it was very difficult. I mean, it was very difficult to be able to eat year in and year out, be able to acquire the labor that you needed. And if you could only, if you could only mechanize one particular area of your operations, right. That was oftentimes not beneficial enough to you because you still had to pay your growers you still had to convince them you're not going to say i'm going to pay you 20% less because 20% of my uh, of my process is mechanized now i still you may still need people to thin weed and then uh, and then harvest um, and so you have to and you also need to, to mechanize a significant enough part of the operation to make investing in things like tractors pay so if your tractor is only available for a couple of weeks of the year because you can use it to, to, as that part of the mechanization, that doesn't work so much. But if you can use it at multiple points along the operation, then all of a sudden that pays and you can really, truly get rid of labor and maybe only hire labor for you know a couple of weeks during the year. And, and that, that was, that was uh, very feasible uh, by the by when, when monogerm seed came out.
1: Okay, okay well, cool. Well, thank you. No, no, no that, was a, that was a great explanation there. Um, so so, you, so next question, you alluded to it previously, but can, what role did petrochemicals play um, in the region after World War II? Um, for all, all you know, again, all parts because of the agriculture.
0: Yeah, and I, I want to step back for this because I realized that in geeking out about beets for a while, I, I lost the thread of cattle. And I, and I want to make sure that I, that I bring that thread back in here because that really is where the last couple of chapters end up. And so, during this entire period, uh, growers for the growers are not only still relying on stock, especially in growing numbers, cattle, but they're increasing their dependence on cattle for um, for, for for manure for um, for fertilizer. Uh, and so, um, but it still is very, very much a side operation prior to 1930, which I'm going to point out as a key year. Prior to 1930, you still you, the the logic was. You can't feed cattle full-time. Here's why. Because um, cattle, those who are doing that work, largely in the Midwest and places like Iowa and Illinois, they're very dependent on a crop that is far more efficient at fattening those animals than the crops that we're using here on the Piedmonts. Beets, beet byproducts, and I haven't talked about beet byproducts, and I'll kind of just let that pass by. But but let's just, but, but so what's happening is, but the logic in Northern Colorado was Well, we can't can't do that, so this is always going to be a side operation. We're never going to be able to compete with the Iowans, you know, of our day. However, the Depression kind of changed that logic in a couple of ways. First of all, because of of the incredible amount of production of staple crops like corn in the United States, Um, Corn became incredibly cheap. So, a few, a couple of different people who were formerly uh, raising beets and other crops decided they're going to try to make a go of it full time. They're going to try and become full time cattle feeders. And I tell their story extensively in the book, but um, W.D. Farr was one, um, and Warren Monfort were the two largest of them. But they said corn's cheap. So, they start trucking in and training in, you know, loads of corn, and they start growing a full-time cattle feeding operation. They start ditching the beets. They start ditching the crop rotations and so on and so forth, okay? But what happens is in the late 1930s, um, hybrid corn starts to come along and new seeds develop that enable farmers in northern Colorado to all of a sudden grow corn at scale, which they could not do before. So now by World War II, especially moving into the 1950s, you have a growing full-time cattle, uh, cattle feeding operations who've largely replaced the former rotations. And you also have a growing supply of locally grown corn that is now feasible. And with the 1950s, it's slowly replacing beets as the principal crop, because instead of sending your beets to Great Western Sugar, you can contract now with these cattle feeders and make a pretty penny by, uh, by being able to grow this much more reliable kind of corn. But corn is only, but, but at the heart, in the background of, of all of these changes, are these petrochemicals you're talking about, because during World War, in the, in the era prior to, and especially during World War II, companies such as Dow, Um, DuPont, Monsanto, and others began to develop organic chemicals that are capable of doing a whole host of things that inorganic ones were not. And amongst those, so I I know that I hope I'm not... uh, patronizing the, your, your listeners, but I want to just point out briefly that the, the, the key difference between these organic chemicals and the inorganic chemicals was the introduction into carbon of carbon into the chemical itself. And the magic of adding car- synthesizing chemicals with carbon is you can now, with experimentation, you can discover chemicals that can kill off, for example, unwanted weeds and unwanted insects without actually killing or harming the plant itself. And so that industry blossoms in multiple ways throughout the country, but in places like the Piedmont, to the point where a chemical like DDT was all of a sudden replacing everything that had previously been used to kill almost all the bugs that were targeting cattle. And now that cattle were being packed into tighter feedlots, okay, the need to kill off all the bugs were being targeted at them. I mean, it was increasing. The same thing was happening with corn. Okay, Corn is not a... a, a, a a crop that is particularly susceptible to a lot of insect outbreaks, at least in northern Colorado, but weeds decimated. So the attempt to be able to bring a whole lot of these petrochemicals. One of the uh, um, one of the uh, uh, people I interviewed uh, on this subject was a guy named Don Ammett, who was formerly a state representative in Colorado. Uh, he was Colorado's agricultural commissioner in the nineteen nineties. And he he kind of says it this way. He said, you know, in the 1950s, we were still mostly doing sugar beets and cattle and things like that. But we started to st- – we, we got contracts to plant corns. So we started planting more of it. He said, one day we tried a new chemical in the early 1960s. It was called atrazine. It was one of the chemicals that was especially powerful in killing wheat. He says, I didn't believe it would work that well. He said – you know, on a particularly, uh, we had a lot of weeds throughout our, uh, uh, um, throughout our fields. So we started using our tractor. We went through them with atrazine, expecting that maybe some of our corn would die, expecting that it would only do a you know, minimally effective job. He said, we waited a couple of days. We went back to the field. And he sort of looks at me and says, the, entire, the fields were clean. There, there was not a single weed. We could not find a single weed on the plot. We had sort of found our miracle drug, if you will. Okay, And so that's just one amongst many stories of the ways that petrochemicals were used to kill off insects that targeted targeted cattle and and certain kinds of crops, but also dealing with weeds on the new principal crop starting in the 50s and 60s, which was corn. And of course, as we talked about, the two of them are coming closer and closer together during that time period.
1: So, So you already kind of hinted at it, you know, but how did... The beef industry and and feedlots and stuff really come to dominate that region because C- obviously petrochemicals, uh, as you said, um, you know, cheap corn prices in the '30s made it possible to start doing a lot of that stuff. Really shipping stuff in, but how did it really come to just kind of be like, as you said, as you said at the beginning, you smell it, you know what it is, and it kind of you know kind of covers the
0: landscape. Yeah, absolutely. So. Uh, if we follow if we follow our uh, the, the the people I mentioned forward a little bit we talk about I talked about W D Far and and Warren Monfort who in the 1930s ditched uh, uh, beets in favor of full time cattle feeding by the 1950s uh, we start to see uh, the Monfort has an operate Monfort family has an operation of about 10,000 uh, full time uh, cattle on feed full time. And the Monfort and uh, I'm sorry, the Monfort family, making sure I get it right. Monfort family is about 10,000. The Mon, the, the FARs are at about 5,000. And we're seeing a lot of others uh, doing the same. But there are some things besides the high availability of local corn, besides the availability of um, some of the, uh, uh, the chemicals, there are a few other things. And for this, I'd like to talk about the relationship between uh, pharmaceuticals, uh, hormones, but also, I think, a change in the culture of the day as well. So uh, let's start off perhaps, let's start off with uh, pharmaceuticals, okay? Uh, if, we take a, if we take the way that uh, cattle were arriving at the feedlot, because okay? now that we're talking about full-time feedlots, These operators, uh, they are, depending on on the size of their operation, they've got people out there looking for their next load of cattle to replace the ones that that are going to be slaughtered. Uh, And so they recognize, they've learned really fast that packing them in small spaces, to give you a sense, the average feedlot or average penned uh, area is one acre and at capacity has about 450 you know, a thousand pound ish kind of animals in it. So we're talking about, uh, uh, we're talking about a a disease magnet, if you will. Okay. And we're also talking about the the need when these cattle to arrive, uh, to be, uh, socially isolated. They have to be vaccinated using a lot of the new pharmaceuticals like tetracycline and areomycin. Um, they get put through a, uh, a a bath of of chemicals to sort of delouse them from all the insects that either existed or they accumulated along the way in in travel. But these become a staple in trying to keep cattle disease free for the five to six months that it usually took to move from the point of arrival to the point of slaughter, um, which was usually, usually involved a gain of about 400 to 500 pounds, a ratio of about You know, for every seven pounds, seven to eight pounds fed, you're supposed to gain about one pound. Okay, And so that's happening. But at the same time, they're always looking for the advantage. What's going to be able to give us more weight per uh, per amount of food gain, per uh, amount of corn or whatever is being fed? And so what they found was that some of these pharmaceuticals like aureomycin and tetracycline, that when fed at a certain quantity within the normal feed regimens, they were noticing that cattle are starting to gain weight a little bit faster on less feed. And that of course is saving costs, and it's also fattening them faster. So there that becomes a regular part. But one of the things that's also happening is that they're taking cues, for example, from the, uh, the chicken industry, the um, poultry industry where uh, those who have been raising poultry in the 20s 30s or 40s have begun using certain kinds of hormones and they've noticed that hey they're able to get gains faster and on less feed than they were before so you start to see the same thing happening with cattle and cattle are a little bit late to the party in, in part because they're they're larger animals it takes longer to produce one so it takes a little more to work to process the experimentation and i'll give you the, a great story i think that really encapsulates how this happens Some of our listeners will probably be familiar with a hormone um, called diethylstilbestrol, which uh, is called DES or stilbestrol for short, that largely gets developed within feedlots in the early 1950s. Um, At Iowa State University, a person named Wise Burroughs begins to experiment uh, uh, with these on cattle, but he needs a large quantity of cattle and he needs a willing partner to sort of accelerate the experimentation. So he goes to one of the two people I spoke about earlier, WD Farr, and says, Hey, will you practice will you use my will you practice with DES? Will can we experiment out with your cattle? Can I send in my grad students regularly to administer, to take data points, and you give me the feedback? And the upside for you is if we get the benefits, you get the advantage of being one of the first people to use it. So from 1953 to 1955, they're doing this. And what they notice is, depending on who you talk to and which experiment you're looking at, cattle start gaining weight anywhere from 5 to 30% on the same amount of feed over what they had been previously, which was stunning gains at the time. Well, at the same time, when that's sort of processed, you um, uh, Eli Lilly, one of the big pharmaceutical companies today, kind of strikes up a partner with his partnership with Iowa State and says, You give us exclusive use of the DES. We will market it and we'll give you a ton of money. WD Farr, for his part, you know, he gets to be one of the first users, and he also begets, gets to be one of the poster uh, poster boys of Eli Lilly uh, as they try to roll out. Long story short, within one year, about 90% of all of the feeders in Northern Colorado are using DES. With the 1960s, you'd be hard pressed to find a single commercial cattle feeder who's not using the pharmaceutical product um, and as part of their sort of feed regimen. So we've got the pharmaceutical part, we've got the chemical part, but there's also, I think, a, a cultural part. And for that, I wanna uh, introduce you to one of my favorite people in the study, Uh, His name was Don Matsushima. And based on, um, he's probably still alive, based on my check of the obituaries a couple weeks ago. Um, Probably, I think he's 102 now. But he he's one of the pioneer um, researchers in this industry of how do we take feed and make it do more, right? Well, and he gets a degree and uh, a PhD, I think, in 1949 or 1950 and uh, from the University of Minnesota. He ends, or he ends up at the University of Minnesota for about eight or nine years. But he was born and raised in northern Colorado, and he would love to get back here. So in 1960, people like the Monforts and the Fars, who I've talked about before, and a lot of the other big cattle feeders of their day, they come knocking on Matsushima's door. And they said, look, you want a job at Colorado State? We'll pay for you to move. We'll give you a good salary. We will uh, move your grad students and we'll even move your the, the cattle that you're experimenting on. All you got to do is say yes. Of course, there's something missing on that. Colorado State wasn't exactly informed. <laughs> but this is this is a perfect illustration of what's going on here, right? It's Colorado had a, cat, a a cattle feeding uh, organization, right? The Colorado Cattle Feeders Association. Okay, and they were mostly when it came to when it came to the need for research, when it came to the need for new kinds of drugs, when it came to the need for vets to solve problems on their feedlots. You know, they went to the they went to the university, and the university basically said, you know, what do you need. And so when these cattle feeders showed up and said, we want to hire Matsushima, they said, okay. And so Matsushima came to me and I, when I talked to Matsushima about it, he says, oh, yeah, I, don't, I can't even remember who a single person, a single faculty member was who interviewed me. But I can remember several cattle feeders. They were all there and it was a done deal. And so he arrives the next year. And so one of the things that Matsushima really focuses on is he says, we have this problem. We think that we should raise cattle as though we're feeding the nation beef based on a 4-H contest. We want, you know, and and if you know, you know, the future feeder or, you know, things like 4-H and other kinds of of, uh, organizations where young people will go to state fairs and things and they'll show their animals. Well, he said, that's all great and good and we need that. But you put the blue pride, the the number one, the the blue ribbon on the cattle that is the best of show. If you cut that animal open, here's what you're going to notice. A really fatty animal. That's not what consumers want, Right. And so he and a lot of the cattle feeders start to really push hard on this narrative. You're not feeding animals. You don't raise cattle. That's not biology in your feedlot. That's beef. The only thing you should focus on is the end product. So Matsushima does a number of things. But the one thing I want to point out is he helps to start a brand new contest at the Denver, Denver Stock Show, which was at that time the nation's largest and they called it the Fed Beef Contest. And what they did was they eliminated everything that had to do with appearance. They eliminated everything that had to do with the show or the presentation. In fact, cattle were only awarded victory after they were slaughtered. So you'd have all these, these attendees at the fairs come and they'd watch behind glass, you know, butchering take place. And then they'd watch a USDA person come in, grade the animal quality of grade and they were shooting for a grade called choice, um, which is the second highest grade. And then they would look at it, they would measure the intramuscular fat, and then they would put the winners on display. But instead of seeing, you know, this 1,200 pound beautiful looking animal on display, you'd see cuts of beef. And so the consumer would then say, well, I need to be thinking about what kind of beef I look for under the cellophane when I go to the supermarket. And the cattle feeders who are attending this event, and, and make no mistake, they did a large number, they're thinking about the end product as well and how all of the research that's going into this, you know, all the things that I've been talking about, the pharmaceutical chemicals, certain kinds of feeds, all of that relate to that piece of beef on the stand that's winning the award because it's least fatty. It has nice little intramuscular marbling. And if you know what I'm talking about, if you eat beef and you see the marbling in the meat, and because it doesn't have much fat on the outside, that's what you want. So when we look at the end story, and the end of the book certainly is Monfort 1970. That's the name of the, the, the company I introduced you to, the Kenny, or the Monfort family in the 1930s. They've got the world's largest collection of, of feedlots at the time. And that sort of is... A sense in which we've got a fully articulated industrial agriculture in the region, the 1870 to 1970 story. But if we step back, we see that it's changes in culture, like the fed beef contest and its influence on that, changes in the types of agriculture, changes in the types of crops that people are growing, um, changes in, in, and a lot of the things that I'm describing here in these last couple of chapters help. Help us understand how that landscape, which was once uh, this pseudo um, uh, utopian kind of planned agricultural community, becomes the epitome of industrial agriculture in America.
1: That was a lot. <laughs> I that, that is a. I it's mean, it, no, no, no. I, I, I don't mean that in a knock. I'm just talking about just the different threads that really come together to kind of help give rise to to this massive beef industry. You know, it, it's, it was one of those things that, you know, as I was reading it, it made sense. But then as you're explaining it again, I was like, man, I forgot exactly how complicated this thing was. And of course, that culture bit at the end, it, it's, you know, culture is always a really nebulous thing to kind of talk about and get to. But I mean, if, if you get a whole industry to start looking, well, this way we have done it for, I don't know how long is now wrong. And this is now the quote unquote correct way, you know, for, for a product to market. I mean, to make that change happen, it's not easy. It didn't happen overnight, but it, it's a big deal when you're actually, you know, kind of make that, especially when you kind of point, it's like, Hey, here's the guy that really kind of gets gets them to start going this way versus that way. Um, but no, it, it's absolutely fascinating. And it's so kind of the big question to end this with um, is, is how, and this is always a hard one too, right, is how can this book help readers better understand the American West?
0: Yeah. So I, I think I want to start off with what you just said about, about culture, because, you know, there's, we tend to think of, if we take this, the, 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 if we take Northern Colorado and the the, the, the feeding industry in, in 1970, and then we talk about culture, I think people would automatically want to jump to Jump to the cellophane and, and jump to the, the beef under the cellophane and say, if we want to look at how culture has changed, we need to look at consumers and how they're buying beef in massive numbers. And the truth is, between 1945 and 1970, the amount of beef the average American consumes per capita, more than doubles. I mean, it's huge. But what if we take that statistic and, and what if the real story is in the landscape of production? And so I think one of the things that my book does is it helps to shift our attention from... Um, large scale landscapes of consumption, or even broad scale landscapes, where we think we talk about industrial agriculture in broad strokes, and I say, well, what we really need to do sometimes is we need to look at how individuals make decisions about the use of their land in a particular place, start there, and then move our way out to understand larger trends that are happening locally, regionally, West, nation, and even beyond. And so I think that's one of the larger things. Um, the next thing, I, I, another thing I'd like to point out too, is that um, we have there's some fantastic books about agriculture in the American West. But I really think that Maya is one of the first to take a landscape and and instead of taking a period from say the late 19th to the early 20th century and ending somewhere in the 1920s and 1930s, um, or taking a book that looks at you know post World War II. I think this book tells the large, tells a story that helps us see that 1870, the threads of 1870 and the threads of 1970 aren't completely disaggregated from one another. That to talk about open range agricolo- open range cattle ranching in the late 19th century and the development of crop agroecologies there is not as distant from the feedlots of the late 20th century as we'd like to believe. And I think we need to see some of those continuities.
1: Well, th- 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 thank you for that. Um, and so so the, kind of the, the concluding question here is, uh, what is next for you? What, if anything, are you working on right now?
0: Thank you. Well, I think you probably understand what oftentimes what happens when you're doing research is you find this fantastic source and you're like, I have to use this. But the source has very little relevance to what you're actually doing at the moment. And I have the privilege right now of finally being able to go do that. Uh, when I was uh, looking at uh, the Great Western Sugar Archives, one of the things I discovered was a document labeled Confidential. And, of course, when we see that, we go, ooh, got to look at that. And what it was, was in 1917, 1918, uh, Great Western Sugar hired a uh, fisheries biologist at the University of Colorado who ended up being probably one of the the most well-recognized people in his field in the 1920s and 1930s. But they hired him as an assistant professor to investigate the pollution that was coming from their factories, right? All of the beet pulp and shreds and some of the various different kinds of inorganic chemicals they were using in the process. And there's no explanation of why, but you read on and he describes going through it and how as a result of all the beet pollution, you've got massive fish kills anywhere near where the company is is operating. And so what I've begun to do is piece together a larger story about pollution in the rural West. There's plenty of information out there, plenty of really great stuff about urban pollution in the early 20th century and well-deserved, well-written. But there hasn't been that that much, I think, that has looked at agricultural pollution. Um, and by some estimates, it's easily, um, depending on how you do your metrics, uh, is, is easily the more consequential, at least in terms of the watershed, um, of the kinds of pollution that are being put out in the American West. And so it's a story about how a company um, goes after understanding its pollution, why it buries it for the next 30 to 40 years, and how that the knowledge um, and understanding comes out in the 1950s and how it eventually becomes regulated. I'm still working through a lot of the the argumentation on this and and the meaning of it. I've uncovered a a great story about uh, uh, the, the biologist that I'm talking about, whose name somehow escaped me right now, um, so that's one thing, and I'm also work t- trying to take. I, I have all these great interviews with uh, uh, these people in the cattle feeding industry that really are begging to be processed. So I, I see myself putting together an article out of that. Um, there are a number of other projects that I'm sort of toying around with, but if, if I talk about what's occupying my mind, those are the two main ones.
1: Well, and that's an interesting one too. It it's you know, I'm not from out west, I'm from the south and I just happened to move to Montana for a job. But but I find myself as a historian, you know, trying to go, Okay, well let me read about the state and, and the region and stuff like that and 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 what what I see more of is that Luke, when you're talking about kind of pollution, industrial waste, you know, I'm more familiar with the stories as it pertains to, like, resource extraction, whether it's mining, you know, because here we got, you know, Butte in Montana, the the the, leg- the toxic legacy that the city and the state is still dealing with today, but then also kind of stuff maybe more so long when it comes to – um uh, kind of the timber industry and things like that when you clear cut what happens you know um, and things of that nature and so I, I'm excited to kind of hear that you're working in the agricultural vein to kind of start tapping into at least to see what's there um, you know uh, to kind of you know fill that part of the, the literature uh, for the West so well cool so yeah I look forward to that um, any, any sorry go ahead
0: I said just thank you
1: <laughs> <laughs> so I'll say is uh, any any final words before we uh, we call it a day here
0: uh, well, no. I just wanted this was this was a pleasure. Uh, it's always nice to be able to, to talk about your work in a in a fairly open ended manner. I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to do so.
1: Absolutely, and I was I was happy to to hear it. And and hopefully this will uh, uh, scratch a bunch of itches for folks uh, there on the New Books Network. So, well, Michael, thank you for your time. It was a fascinating discussion. I really do appreciate it. Thank you, Troy.